Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name is Shelley Johnson. I'm a HR consultant. M. Hey, Shell. Emily Bowen here, and I am all about the world of recruitment. On this episode, we're talking about disability in the workplace. Kimberly Lewis is the general manager of Hunter Prelude, a not for profit charity providing early intervention and therapy services. Kimberly has experience in leading teams under the NDIS and working as a speech pathologist within the government, non government, and private sectors. Driven by her personal experience with disability, Kimberly is motivated to support teams through change to provide better outcomes for children and their families. Kimberly is passionate about promoting the rights of people with disability and supporting access, inclusion, and diversity in the community. In her spare time, Kimberly is studying her MBA at the University of Newcastle. She walks her dog and she actually has a bit of fun filming Auslan song collaborations with friends, which is really cool if you happen to get the chance to spot it on her LinkedIn profile. Before we get into the show, we want to shout out to our show partner, Rarekind. Rarekind believe there's no limit to how good work can be. They find one of a kind people, the kind of people who don't just fit into culture, but help create it. But just because they've got a fresh perspective doesn't mean they're new. In fact, they've been in the game a long time. So they've got the creds, the experience to back up what they say. To check out the opportunities they have at the moment, visit rarekind.com.au. You might just find the position you were born for. Today on the show, we're joined by Kimberly Lewis, and it's just such a privilege to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah, this is a really important episode to us, and we have for some time now been looking to incorporate more of this conversation in the podcast, and that's around any topics to do with things like inclusion and diversity. Um, we're a big fan and in particular, we're really keen to uh, have you on board sharing your own story of being somebody who is not only working in an organisation, but is a leader of an organisation and you happen to have a disability as well. So we're going to do a bit of a deep dive on on what that looks like from a few different angles. But before we get into it, Kim, I'd just love to hear a bit about your career story. Yeah, wonderful. So I am so grateful. I absolutely love my job. I love the people that I work with. I love the people that I support. Yeah, so I, I feel very, very privileged. Um, but, yeah, my story is that I was born without hearing in my right ear. So when I was little, my mum used to call me half deaf. And um, that's how I used to introduce myself as a kid. And um, as part of that, I ended up having a lot of audiology, speech pathology as a child. Absolutely hated it. Like I can just remember getting in trouble for not hearing things from the audiologist. And anyway, I went through high school and sort of um, started thinking about what I wanted to do for a job when I became a, a grown-up and an adult. At the time, was either going to be a lawyer, a teacher, 
or a speech pathologist. And um, yeah, I, I got some pretty good cruise advice actually from the cruise advisor at Very Weather High who told me to follow something that I was really passionate and interested in. So I um, ended up going into speech pathology at uni um, and trying, you know, do that classic wounded healer story of becoming a better speech pathologist than the one that I had as a kid. <laughs> But yeah, and so I went through uni and graduated and ended up getting um, my first job in adult services, actually. Started working in hospitals in some sort of subacute rehab um, areas. And yeah, I, at that time I was a new graduate, didn't have any support from my workplace. And I was also going through um, a period where as a teenager, particularly through uni, I was diagnosed with a condition called Meniere's disease. And Meniere's disease is a fluctuating condition that what they, they now think is an autoimmune disease and your body attacks it, your ear sort of attacks itself. And so over time, you end up with a degenerative hearing loss. So my ears just getting worse and worse and worse. And so I found myself going into a career where, ironically, as a speech pathologist, you need to actually have really good is so I, I always make the joke that I'm the world's crappiest speech pathologist. <laughs> so I ended up, um, I ended up actually falling into the disability sector. So at the time, um, and this is how old I am, I'm a geriatric millennial. I, um, I was in my early career during the GFC, and there was obviously a lot of disruption in the workplace at that time. I was in Sydney and end up um, getting a job with what used to be called disability ageing and home care, so the government disability provider back in the day. Um, I started working with children and adults with intellectual disability and complex disability and the synergy for me with that was that um, the children I was working with are mostly nonverbal. So I sort of hit this um, sweet spot of um, a job in that I could still support people in their communication, which I was so passionate about, but didn't have to so heavily rely on my ears um and then yeah my look my ears just kept getting worse and worse and worse and um I ended up getting some opportunities actually along the way I had very very fortunate um opportunities to be sponsored by other female leaders into getting into management and leadership positions and yeah had some brilliant mentors along my way as well and yeah actively got into leadership because I thought it was a way I could stay connected despite whatever did happen with my hearing um, and to coach and mentor and support the next generation of therapists that um, was my way of, again, contributing back to that community in, in a different way that I intended to. But that's, that's where I ended up and I absolutely love it. You, you know, I'm just racking up the list of all these wonderful things that you are, qualified speech pathologist, you're an organisational uh, leader. You haven't mentioned it, but you also... I, don't know if you've finished it yet, but certainly studying or have studied your Masters of Business Admin, so MBA. Uh, and, I, you know, this is the point where we all think, how does she do it all? How does she fit it all in? Um, but again, as, as you've shared, you know, you've got this story around your hearing and you are deaf. And we would love to also understand, as you've gone on that journey and now, how has that had an impact? Because that is quite unique to you. Um, there are many people who do have a disability and there are many people who don't. Yeah, and I, I think the um, the impact of me being deaf obviously has been a huge driving force in my life and my career. Um, it's something that I actually see as a huge strength 
Um, I certainly wouldn't be doing what I am now if I hadn't had that experience. Um, I'm hoping I'd be doing something equally exciting and contributing to society um, and there's a parallel universe somewhere where I'm a ambitious lawyer helping the underdog somewhere out there. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, growing up, growing up deaf was really interesting for me and one of the things I've reflected on as a, you know, almost 37-year-old now is that journey around my deaf identity. So when I was I was young, I didn't really understand what that meant. I, I always felt different, but um, same enough, I guess, to, to feel included. Having been diagnosed with Meniere's disease as a, a teenager was pretty rough. It's a, a condition that people don't often get diagnosed or experience into their, usually it's into their 30s. I had my first Meniere's attack when I was 15. So you're in that, you know, middle of you know, your friends are the most important thing. You're worried about boys in high school wanting to fit in. Um, and I just had this extra layer of, um, you know, I have really strong memories of being a, a young woman in a classroom, not being able to hear the teacher. And I've had lots of experiences where people have, you know, made, and I think everyone with a disability would have these as well, and not even that, any any sort of marginalised group, you know, as a woman or as a young leader, people say off-the-cuff things to you all the time. But I remember when I was young, somebody said to me, oh, I'm really surprised that you're deaf and you also go to a selective high school. And I was like, oh, what? I'm confused how wow. those two things relate to each other. Um, and, yeah, as a, I even remember working in retail and I told when I, you know, did that big, quitting your first retail job to go to university or I think I've, I must have finished uni and um being told by my manager at the time like looked at me in surprise saying oh I um have you been at uni this whole time and I was like yeah yeah like this is this is something that I've been doing on my side gig just so I can you know go out drinking and buy a top from Supre you know the <laughs> uh, early no, um, two thousands. Um, but yeah, it's had a it's had a really interesting impact on on my career um, and my experience in the workplace and that concept yeah, of like my my deaf identity being someone who is deaf and the deaf community is a very complex community. Um, there's a huge spectrum of deafness. You know, we talk about little d deaf and big d deaf, and um, I'm certainly little d deaf but it was really only until I entered the national disability scheme as a I don't know it would have been in my it was 2013 because we were in the launch site here in the hunter so you can do the maths but um yeah it wasn't until then that I really considered myself to be disabled and that was that was a really interesting yeah period of time around what can I you know as a person with disability, what can I achieve? What are my limitations? How far can I push this? Um, and if anyone knows me and my personality, the answer to that is I'm going to do whatever I want. And I, I've i got just as much opportunity um, if I work hard to achieve what I want to do. So, yeah, I um, the deaf, me being deaf has never stopped me in terms of my work. It certainly was very difficult during uni as well like just the fact that I, I also I had periods of time I couldn't hear the lectures um 
even now going back to uni, like there's some lecture theatres that I struggle with. Um, I'm really reliant on my equipment. I need my hearing aid, my cochlear implant to, to hear. The <laughs> I struggle with accents, like just trying to pick up how people say things differently. So there's a lot of university lecturers that um, do have an accent. So I will often sit in class and, and try and take as much as I can in and then like lean over to my friend again, like I'm a 14 year old kid saying, oh, what did, what did she say? Can you write it? And people write me notes in class and I just think, oh, I'll, I'll go back and read the textbook. But look, how, how have I approached it? I think with curiosity. Um, I think I've reached out for support where I, I needed to, um, talk to people as I needed to. But again, you know, people with disability are just like everyone else. And um, yeah, I've, I've certainly never... Yeah, it's been challenging. I've certainly never thought of it as a barrier to anything that I wanted to do at work. Um, it's just, it's the life of the pivot, right? So I can't be a speech pathologist, I'll be a leader. Wow. There's so much, just hearing this, this your story, Kim, and what you've navigated. And I just love the language you've used around having curiosity and how it's become a driving force for you in your own career, uh, your deaf identity, and how that's led to where you are today for our listeners, I think that's so helpful to hear. And and the other thing I'm drawing out of this conversation is, well, we probably don't have enough discussions about this. And sometimes people don't know how to approach this type of conversation and hearing your story about what your manager at work said and, and just things like that, where we're like, how do we have healthy conversations that lead to more inclusive workplaces because for us that's something that's really important and I'd love to pose a couple of questions we've had from our community members because really just getting into this discussion one of the questions was what comments would you have on the stigma associated with disability in the workplace and is that changing? Yeah so I um I certainly think there is a lot of stigma and like as I sort of shared it's the it's the implicit bias stuff that I think we all face in different ways of our lives. Um, one of the things I've certainly experienced, and those two examples um, are probably good ones, but the story I'm telling myself when I hear those things is that people don't think I'm smart. They don't think I can do things. Um, and I think that the, the biggest myth around disability is that people with disability are not competent. And, yeah, I'm certainly... Uh, I'm not a disability advocate. I'm not a disability industrial relations expert. Um, I'm not a, a, a an academic or a researcher in the field, but um, there certainly is, you know, data that I've read around people with disability and their very valuable contribution to any workplace and um, people with disability being, you know, if not equal to but more productive than other members of um the workforce. So I think it's really just around people, yeah, recognising what they can do to support people with a disability to at first enter the workforce, what barriers we've got around different workplaces, whether it is something around workplace modifications, whether it's environmental, whether it's cultural, um, whether people need to start looking at um, how do we be more inclusive in the in the workplace so that people want to apply for jobs. Um, do I think it's changing? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know if I've seen enough yet to be able to 
really comment on that. Um, I'm still certainly having examples where I think there's a lot of ways that people can improve the access I have to um, experiences, workplaces or um, out in the community, um, even even. This is a really great example, having the opportunity to be, even though this is a, a podcast, being able to see you guys and lip read, that's really important for me. Um, so really, yeah, I'm grateful that we've been able to have that opportunity. I think there are some really positive things happening, though. So one thing that I have seen in the, you know, in the last 10 years is there's a lot more people with disability visible in the media. So we see a lot more people on TVs, in movies. Um, for me, I was really excited to see Coda win the um, Oscars this year. Um, so we're seeing, I think we're being exposed to a lot more stories. Um, I think that we're, we're seeing a lot of changes with the NDIS here in Australia. There's a lot of potential. The NDIS has a focus around disability employment in particular. If the NGIS is fully funded, I think it can do some really wonderful things here in um, in our country. I think where we need to be careful around um, not only that stigma but around people's perception of disability is that we also need to be recognising that disability is a very broad range. It's a, there's a lot of people in that category that we, we're talking about here. And so it's very easy to stereotype or think about disability as a homogenous group. And often in the media, when we are seeing people with disability, you'll see photos of people who are, are wheelchair users or have a physical disability. Um, and we're not seeing that same spectrum of people around um, having intellectual disability or sensory disabilities um, or yeah, neurodiversity in general. I think we're all we're all still learning, but I think it's definitely taking um, a step in the right direction. That final sentence there on we're all still learning, and and earlier you talked about exposure. I guess that makes me think of one of the questions we were really keen to ask, and that's around, you know, so many of us have not had that experience of either living with disability or working alongside someone with disability, and so. I don't know, I don't think I'm alone when I say this, but there can be this sense of like, okay, that's foreign, that's unknown, I don't know what the right thing to do is, so maybe I do nothing or maybe I live in, you know, fear of doing the wrong thing. Would you have any advice for us about how do we navigate that sense of what is right, what is wrong, what we should do, not do? You know, I, I said to you before we started recording that I was really sensitive to language in this conversation as I was communicating with you, you know, before we started recording, when we were teeing up this time, because I just don't know, but I don't want to do the wrong thing. So what help can you give me and, and others in this sort of situation? Yeah. Oh, look, Emily, you're certainly not alone. And I, um, I asked my husband if I could tell this story and he said it was okay. So I'll just share this because I think this is a really helpful story. But um, I've been, yeah, very grateful um, to have the experience I've had and I've got lots of people that I've worked with disability. I've got a lot of friends along, uh, I've made along the way with a disability as well. And I was doing some work at the time with um, a, a local woman and her daughter who has cerebral palsy and we were creating a social group for people with complex communication um, needs. And we started to look at whether we could do some private work around communication access. So getting communication supports into local businesses like the movies, the shops, so that people with communication devices or systems didn't necessarily have to bring 
their own um, communication system out in the community. That's what access is really about. You know, we're not expecting people who use a wheelchair to bring their own ramp to be able to get into a building. Anyway, so it was um, we're all getting to know each other and start this business and we decided to have like a, a barbecue with both of our families. And so I, um, my husband and I were getting ready and the um, it was Dana and Caitlin and Caitlin at the time was maybe I don't know, 13 or 14 um, uses an iPad and to communicate and uses keyword sign um, which is different to Auslan but uses um, keyword sign borrows the signs from Auslan to add to English um, word order to support communication and he came up to me and he said oh how am I going to talk to Caitlin I said how, how do you think you're going to talk to Caitlin? <laughs> and he's like, oh, I don't know. And I said, well, she uses her iPad, so she's got um, lots of different visuals um, and a system. It's a communication system that she uses. Um, and he's been on this journey with me, so he's learned a bit of Auslan along the way as well, actually, so he knows a few signs. And I said, you could also use keyword sign with her. Um, and he said, oh, okay. And he's like, I just don't, I don't know how I'm going to talk to her. And I said, oh, look, go have a shower, come back to me, have a think about it, and I'll coach you through this so we can have a, you know, a barbecue like you would every other weekend with your friends um, or colleagues. And um, he came back to me and he said, oh, okay, um, I figured it out. I was like, okay, what are you going to do? And he's like, I'm just not going to talk to her. I'll just talk to the adults. And I was like, face palm moment. I was just like, if Caitlin didn't have cerebral palsy, or she could communicate using speech, would you talk to her? If you're a visitor in her home, and he's like, well, yeah, like, of course. And I was like, well, that's your answer. And so we went to this barbecue and I thought, you know what, I'm going to leave it there. I'm just going to throw him in to the deep end and see what happens. And, of course, Caitlin comes straight to him. He's a new person she'd never met, had this full-blown conversation with him using his iPad. Um, they did a bit of signing together, get in the car. And I said, how'd it go? He goes, oh, that was easy. That was just like talking to anyone. And I was like, of course it is. She has a communication system. But it really it triggered this conversation from, um, between us. And I said, have you not met anyone with a disability before? He said, no. When, when would I have ever met anyone with a disability? I work in construction. And I said, well, there's probably a lot of people that work in construction with a disability. You might just not know about it. But I just realised it was one of those light bulb moments for me. I just realised that I live in this different part of the world or a bubble that yeah not everyone exists in every day and of course I think where people aren't sure or they they don't have those experiences make them very nervous um and I think that I think that tell me if I'm if I'm doing something wrong feeling is a really good one because it means that this is important to you that that you want to do the right thing so look my my advice to you is just to keep listening to stories like this, keep asking questions, engage with people from lots of diverse backgrounds. Um, it's really a learning journey and I think the, that people will come with you on it. But, yeah, I think there's a lot of power in being vulnerable as well. So saying that, hey, can I ask this question? Um, is it okay? What, what does this mean for you? Um, that's a, yeah, I, I feel really comfortable with that.
I love what you're saying, Kim, about vulnerability. I think that's such important insight and advice for us when we're in these moments and situations to really reflect on. And we're going to, in a moment, get to some listener questions. But before we do, we're just going to take a quick break. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Money Medical, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, and My Millennial Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another question we have in the Facebook community was, from an employer point of view, what can we do to create a more inclusive workplace for new and existing employees? Look, I could I can share with you... Look, this is just my experience and my opinion. And I, it was funny when I um, started looking at some of these questions, I was like, I better do some Googling about disability employment. And and I actually like thought, you know what? No, they've invited me on this podcast for me. I'm just going to be me and share what what I know and um, what I can help hopefully contribute. But look, my advice is just to recognise that, yeah, the disability community is, it's not a one size fits all. So there's not a um, there's not a template here. There's not a um, a shortcut to say if you have this checklist and um, you do these three to five things that you're going to be inclusive for everyone because people's needs are really individual. Um, they're unique and they yeah they need to be a discussion um, and a, a conversation with the person that you're you're working with. Um, for those employers out there, um, whether you're in small small business um, or working in corporates, my, my first thought is to have a look at um, to see if you have one um, or if you should have a disability inclusion action plan. So what are the systemic things that um, employers can be doing to promote people with disability in the workforce but also to be making sure that we're sort of supporting people with a disability in our workforce to continue to work in their roles have opportunities for promotion, look at different, um, you know, cross-promotional opportunities, maintain their employment. There's also some very, um, yeah, complex correlation between disability and health. So physical health um, can often affect people, but also mental health in the workplace as well. So I'd be looking at, yeah, what policies do you have in place? Um, Recruitment policies are a good place to start, probation policies, um, any sort of employee engagement 
But really around making inclusive workplaces, um, obviously I think is largely driven by the culture. Culture is driven by leadership. Um, and I think it's important if you've got new or existing employees, again, to to ask, ask them um, in a way that's, like I said, vulnerability, in the words of Renee Brown, you know, vulnerability builds trust. Um, you know, share with them that your your intent is to support them, that it's an area that you might not feel confident in, that you, you want to learn in this space um, and how can you support your employees. Um, my biggest advice, though, is ask them but don't make them responsible. So um, we see this in a lot of in a lot of different areas around vulnerable groups where people are feeling like they're not the expert on on something so they they go to ask that community and then all of a sudden it's that community's responsibility to fix it um so i'd say to people yeah educate yourselves um but don't make your employees responsible for for whatever actions that you're, you're putting towards um we're putting together to support them wow that's so so helpful just to say ask but don't make them responsible and i i'm just thinking this is I know we um, have our list of questions. I just have a bit of a rogue one, if this is okay. I love the example before where you said, we don't expect someone with a wheelchair to bring a ramp. So when we're thinking about access and it's easy sometimes to pinpoint when it's a physical disability and we can see it, what about the disabilities that aren't visible? So thinking about neurodiversity and, and how do we, I guess, understand how to create more access or remove some of the barriers for people in that group? Yeah, look, again, I'm certainly not an expert. Um, I've worked I've worked many, many years with people who um, are neurodiverse, um, lots of particularly children and families impacted by autism. Again, I would I would continue to encourage employers to educate themselves. Certainly, when I when I say ask questions, you need to do that with uh, um, the greatest level of respect. But you also need to, you know, have that emotional intelligence to know when it's appropriate to ask someone. So if, if you don't know somebody has a, a diagnosed disability or they don't identify as having a disability, um, going out and just straight up asking someone if they've got autism is probably not okay. Um, but if we, you know, you're an employer and you're, you know, you're noticing that um, someone's finding environments challenging or there's some behaviour there, observations that you're picking up, talk about that. You know, you might find that people do start to disclose things to you around, around a disability. It might be around mental health. But again, it's that it's that idea of asking people but not being responsible but also, you know, you're not entitled to that information either. So you need people to be leading it and owning that conversation um, and, you know, you're, you're a passenger on that and your job is there to listen and learn and in the workplace make sure that people have access to their entitlements, they've got access to the support that they need. Yeah, does that, anything else? Absolutely. That's, no, that's a great really answer. Thank you. Kim, you've mentioned the recruitment process a couple of times and obviously a, a space that I have a particular soft spot for and, and it's something that I think about often because I do have that firsthand opportunity to do something about this. And 
So as, I guess, employers or as hiring managers, recruiters, there's certainly a lot of work we can do from a policy point of view, from a procedural point of view to reduce the boundaries. Over the time that we've been doing this podcast, though, we've also had a couple of listeners who do live with disability who have asked us, well, if I'm the candidate and I'm going for a job, what should I be telling the hiring manager? What should I be telling the recruiter? Should I disclose at a certain point? Should I never disclose? And again, I I dare say this would be a uh, case by case, you know, complex answer, but I'd love to hear your thoughts and maybe some of your experiences on what this has looked like. Yeah, of course. I, um, again, I think where my head goes is just that recognition that a person's disability identity is exceptionally personal. You know, it's a really intimate um, journey for people to, to go through. Um, and it is something that I think is long life journey um, and I think it can be more confronting for our, our younger listeners here, you know. It, it's very different to be thinking about yourself and opportunities and your rights at work as a 20-year-old versus a 30-year-old versus a 40-year-old. In terms of whether people should disclose their disability or not, again, I, I don't, I'm not the expert around the the legislation, um, but certainly where where my head goes directly is that I would encourage people to do so. And the reason why I say that is that I think employment is really around two different parties coming together um, and making an assessment about whether their values align. So it doesn't it doesn't necessarily matter what the work is, what the industry is, what the sector is, but you've got an employer or a manager and a worker that are ultimately trying to achieve something together and doing so in a way that their values match. And uh, this is probably a really optimistic way of thinking about it. So I'm not saying those systemic barriers aren't there, that, you know, disability discrimination certainly is a very real and tangible um, experience of many people. And I guess this is maybe a privileged position to say this from being a leader of an organisation and a general manager of an organisation, but I would want people to walk into to roles and workplaces where they do see a values and culture fit. And I just wouldn't want anyone with a disability to be wasting their time where they didn't feel that they were valued or that their disability somehow was a, a judgment or equated to some level of competence or intelligence or productivity or, or worth to a company um, because, I, like I said, I think disability and diversity is always a strength. I think diverse teams are strong and productive teams. We know that. The research is clear on that. Um, do, I, do I think everybody is in the, the mental and psychological position to be able to have those really difficult conversations up front? I don't know. I think that's for people to make decisions on them um, for themselves. But um, it sort of makes me, I appreciate the question, but it sort of makes me sad that we're even still having this conversation in 2022 because um, it it shouldn't, we shouldn't have to ask it. You know, there should be enough um, protections, both legislatively, ethically, morally, um, you know, in, a, in our workplaces in Australia that somebody isn't sitting there thinking, I wonder if I disclose my disability, will this mean that I won't get a job? Does this mean I'm not going to get an interview? Does this mean that um, 
yeah, I'm not going to get access to a promotion because somebody thinks I'm not going to do as good a job as someone who doesn't have a disability. So, I, yeah, I think um, not disclosing that information isn't isn't helping the worker. I don't think you're going to get the support that you need. You're not going to, like, I think interviews, um, yeah, I'm keen for you guys to jump in, but I think interviews are a two-way process. I think it's just as much, especially with the workforce shortages we're all experiencing at the moment, um, employers are on interview. We're the, we're the ones being asked the hard questions. So... I think it's about two people coming together and um, the the way to start building that trust in the employment relationship is to start having the conversations that you need from the beginning. Yeah, we completely agree with you there. We often talk about how it's just a couple of people coming together to have a conversation, suss each other out. And we, we work in to also understand, depending on your answer to that question, what this looks like when you are in a workplace. And we may have listeners right now who... They've already been through the recruitment process. They're in the business and they're thinking, do I, don't I tell my manager because it's not something I've had an open dialogue about before. And look, don't let me put words in your mouth, but I'm hearing what you're saying and thinking the same answer applies. Um, you know, it is about that open dialogue and, and making sure that there's that alignment in values, whether you're in the recruitment process or you're in a, already uh, a workplace relationship where, you know, you want to give the best and receive the best. Yeah, so I think if people are choosing to disclose information about their disability um, and I, I would encourage people to do so so that you do have the support that you need if you need it. But if people are sitting there not wondering, it's almost that, um, you know, that meme that's like, it's been too long to ask this question. Yeah. Yeah, if you're sitting there sort of a year or two in thinking, I haven't had this conversation, but I'd like to, how do I do it? I'd encourage people just to set a time with their manager um, and whether you've got that sort of coaching time once a month that you've already got booked in um, or if you can set a, a meeting with them and, and let them know what sort of what the agenda is or the, the topic is, make sure you've got them in a, um, you know, be, being a leader, make sure you've got them in a time that their headspace is you know, it's not a corridor conversation. It's not a conversation in the lunchroom. Make sure that it's, uh, you know, you're setting up that conversation for success. Um, I talk about what's working really well for you and also what's not working well. And I guess what the, the goal of the conversation is, is it around there is some support that you need that you don't feel like you have access to or whether it's, it's more of an FYI um, or, you know, maybe this is part of part of your disability identity that you're starting to share information with new people about what that means for you. I'd also suggest if there were any sort of workplace modifications people were talking about or strategies that they wanted their manager to work with them on um, putting them in place, but also making sure you book in the circle back. I think that's exceptionally important that we, um, especially in workplaces where we're having these you know, it's this is emotional labour of difficult conversations and there's this temptation for people, both leaders and um, and staff, to sort of like take a big deep breath, have a big difficult conversation and then like, oh, that was really awkward um, or I wasn't expecting all that or that made me feel uncomfortable and then the meeting finishes or the conversation finishes and they're like, oh, great, that's over, I've, I've done my job here. And, yeah, I think we need to commit to the 
check back in. You know, if somebody's coming to you with a conversation about their support needs, um, they're doing it for a reason. So it, it's not, like I said, it's not a checklist. This is dynamic. This is fluid. It's it's ongoing for people. So making sure that whatever, um, whether it's formal and I would suggest it formal or informal, but I'd suggest it's a formal procedure that you put in place to check back in as an employee to make sure that you're doing everything that you can um, to support them, um, but also in terms of work health and safety and your obligations and employer making sure that you've got your duty of care covered off once you know the information that you do know. I'd also very, very highly recommend anyone to um, both initiate yourself or employers to talk to their staff around accessing employee assistant programs if they do have those available in the workplace. If you don't have them available, reaching out to some of those community um, opportunities around supporting people to access Lifeline because, like I said, there's, there's often a, a big mental health impact for people with disability in the workplace and in the community. Um, and some of the EAPS, I know our EAPS program actually has a manager hotline. So they've got you know, opportunities to talk to a psychologist to say, hey, my, my team members come to me with this really difficult conversation. I'm not sure how to handle it and get some coaching that way. There is so much good and helpful advice that you've just shared. I'm, I'm like, again, all my notes are going, I'm thinking, wow, this is just so rich and helpful for all of our listeners and our community here at My Millennial Career. And I just have to say thank you for sharing so honestly your own stories as well, Kim. It's just beautiful to hear. I'd love to, I guess, coming to a close of this conversation, is there any final advice that you would give to our listeners? I would just say that disability is complex in as many ways as it is simple. You know, I think... Um, it's certainly useful for people to recognise that it's a broad spectrum, that everyone has their own story, everybody's story is different. Um, there are some some shared experience that disability community go through together, but it, it also is, yeah, very unique in um, people's life stories, how it impacts their work, how it impacts their career, their career choices, the, the opportunities, the barriers. Um, but I think the most important thing to walk away with is that that we are all human, like we are just people and um, and that's people with disability and without and that we're all learning as well. So the disability community itself is learning about um, other members in the, the disability community um, and how we can all support each other. So I think lean in, you know, educate yourself, ask questions, reach out to people who, um, you know, might know something more about something than you do and, and listen. And, yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, that collaboration that we can do together as as a community. But, yeah, also particularly in the, the workplace around um, supporting other leaders um, and other people at work to, to learn about this stuff and, yeah, just do what you can to provide opportunities for people. Some of my favourite episodes are the ones where I feel like I know nowhere near enough and I learn a whole lot and this has been one of those. So thank you so much, Kim, again for just, you know, practising what you preach basically, you know, around vulnerability, around sharing, around curiosity and openness. This has just oozed all of those things and so thank you so much for your time. 
No worries. Well, I hope your listeners have enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, please feel free if anyone yeah has anything. I'm certainly open for people reaching out and asking questions. And, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, that's true. And you do share some really great and wonderful content on LinkedIn, actually. I have learned a lot there myself. So I would encourage, I'm sure you won't mind the odd um, millennial connect, my millennial career connection request. If anybody does want to look you up, Kimberly Lewis on LinkedIn, that's a great idea. We will include that in the show notes too, so you can find where to go. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kim. Pleasure to have you with us today. And as always, as I like to say at the end, if you like the show, five-star rating and review, it does help us to get the show out there. So thank you and share this with a friend who you feel that this would be helpful for. Thanks so much for hanging out. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Money Medical, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business and My Millennial Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.